It's June the 8th, 1946. Post-war London is in a party mood. All morning, the victory parade to celebrate the end of World War II has seen the streets of the capital filled with pomp and ceremony. The King and Queen of Great Britain lead an elaborate procession of pipers, brass bands, horse-drawn carriages and battalions of returning soldiers. All march in the streets to great fanfare and adulation from the gathered crowds. In Chester Square, in the affluent suburb of Belgravia, the scene is somewhat quieter. The pageantry has passed by and the planned firework finale is still a few hours off. For now, with bunting fluttering in the breeze, the midsummer afternoon light bounces off the white-fronted terraced houses. This square represents some of the most expensive and desirable property in London, home to celebrities, royalty, and foreign dignitaries alike. Number 45 Chester Square is no different. It is currently owned by George II, the King of Greece, who has been in exile since Germany invaded his home country in 1941. The King is not currently in residence, while some redecoration work is underway, but his housekeeper is there to keep the fort. Inside number 45, that housekeeper, Elizabeth McLinden, sits nervously in the King's library. It's a beautiful room, full of ancient books, largely unread. To Elizabeth, the dark wood cladding the walls is as oppressive as the heavy drapes framing the windows. The whole place exudes wealth and privilege. She should feel like she's landed on her feet with this new role, but in truth, she feels out of her depth. At 41 years old, she's held a number of jobs in her lifetime, none as fancy as this one. In fact, it's only thanks to some glowing references forged by her fiancé, Arthur Boyce, that she got the position here in the first place. And right now, she's regretting having anything to do with Arthur at all. She and Arthur are due to marry in a few months. While she's not head over heels for him, she had thought the relationship was solid and happy. But recently, she's learned a couple of things about her fiancé that she's not happy with. Arthur has always liked to spin a yarn, often making himself out to be more heroic than he is, especially in his war efforts. Just recently, Elizabeth's noticed that his stories sometimes contradict each other. She's also beginning to suspect that he's not quite as well off as he'd made out. Not that his money matters to her that much, but she doesn't like being lied to. In the King's Library, dust hangs in the beams of light streaming through the windows. Elizabeth lifts the telephone receiver and presses it to her ear, but she doesn't get to dial the number. Instead, she feels a draft behind her, and before she can even turn, a loud bang precedes a sharp pain to the back of her head. Everything goes black. Her head slumps forward onto the desk, the phone receiver clattering from her hand. Elizabeth McLinden is dead. Solving her murder will call on the very latest forensic techniques from Scotland Yard's murder squad. A scandalous shooting at the King of Greece's London residence needs the best minds working at the top of their game. But his groundbreaking science, coupled with intelligent detective work, enough to catch a cold-blooded killer.
I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. It is three o'clock on Sunday the 9th of July, 1946. King George II of Greece and his private secretary arrive at Chester Square, blissfully unaware of the terrible attack that happened here yesterday. The king has come here today to check on the renovation work that needs to happen before he can move in. He's expecting the house to be a hive of activity. So he's a little disturbed to find the front door locked and no sign of life in the property at all. Even the milk bottles still sit on the doorstep, curdling in the afternoon sun. His private secretary, Mr. Papa Nicolau, hammers on the door to no reply. With no keys of his own, the annoyed Greek king leaves the house unvisited. On the 14th of July, Papa Nicolau returns with a spare set of keys. Yet more milk bottles sit untouched on the doorstep and the door is still locked. At least this time he can open it himself. Inside, he's both angry and alarmed to find none of the redecoration work done and no sign of the newly appointed housekeeper. He does find a note on the hall table. It's from Elizabeth McLinden, telling other staff they're not needed yet and will be contacted when they are. The King's private secretary tuts. She has no right to dismiss the other staff. No wonder nothing has happened with those renovations. Strolling through the house, the loud ticking of a grandfather clock echoing in the silence, he finds all rooms empty. There's only one he can't check. The library door is locked. He checks the keys on his spare set, but none will fit the lock. Papa Nicolau feels an uneasy tension building in his gut. The king will be most displeased with this lack of progress. Elizabeth McLinden's disappearance with no warning or notice is odd, as is the locked door. He tries rattling the handle, but to no avail. Where could she be? The shrill ring of the telephone pierces the air, startling Papa Nicola. Unable to get to the phone in the library, he hurries to the hallway and lifts the receiver there. The caller identifies himself as a Mr. Arthur Boyce. Asking for Ms. McLinden, he sounds annoyed to find she's not there. He tells Papa Nicola that he is her fiancé, and that he's been trying to reach her for a couple of days with no success. The private secretary replaces the handset, feeling sure now that something very odd is afoot. It is one thing for the housekeeper to abandon her position without word, but to leave her fiancé too? That doesn't sit well at all. Picking up the phone again, he dials the number for the police, telling them that the king's housekeeper is missing and they should come and investigate immediately. 
Detective Inspector John Ball of Scotland Yard is the man dispatched to investigate. Knocking on the door of 45 Chester Square, he is greeted by Papa Niccolo and invited inside. The eyeball is one of Scotland Yard's more respected detectives, having been with the flying squad since his early days. Tall, elegant and energetic, he has an incisive mind and a reputation for calm, diligent investigation. Exactly the man, then, to look into the suspicious disappearance of the King's housekeeper. The King's private secretary wastes no time in leading D.I. Ball to the locked library door, explaining all that he knows of the missing woman on the way. D.I. Ball checks the door, steps back, and, raising a well-heeled foot, kicks out hard at the lock, breaking the door wide open. A cloying, metallic smell billows out on the warm air from inside. Ball pulls his handkerchief from his pockets, covering his mouth and nose, and steps inside. A woman is slumped at a small table in the corner of the room, bathed in sunshine from the tall windows. Her head rests on her arms, but she's not sleeping. She's been shot. The bullet wound to the back of the head is clear to see. Papa Nicolau steps into the room, clearly upset at the sight. But D.I. Ball stops him coming any closer. There's nothing that can be done for Elizabeth now. The detective has seen enough murder victims in his time at the yard to know that there will be evidence to preserve here. He can't have anyone else disturbing the scene. Looking at the room, D.I. Ball sees no sign of a scuffle. It doesn't look like she struggled with her killer. His assumption is that Elizabeth did not even see who pulled the trigger. But who shot her? And why? The high-profile nature of the homeowner and the brutality of the crime mean that the case will certainly draw attention. All eyes are going to be on Scotland Yard to get a speedy resolution. The well-ordered library, with its dark-panelled walls and dusty books, may look tidy and untouched but D.I. Ball knows that the smallest trace of evidence can lead to a conviction. Within these four walls, he hopes to find the clues he needs to catch the gunman. Starting with that bullet on the floor behind Elizabeth's chair. Ball immediately calls his friend and colleague, pathologist Keith Simpson, to examine the scene. Forensic science has already become a well-established means of both solving crimes and identifying suspects and D.I. Ball has worked with the pioneering scientist several times before. The scene doesn't offer an enormous amount to go on. There's nothing in the room to suggest who the killer might have been, the only trace being the 32 caliber casing found on the floor behind Elizabeth's chair. From the trajectory of the bullet's passage into her skull, Simpson is confident that she didn't turn to see her killer before the shot was fired. He estimates that the single, fatal shot came from around two feet away. Given the condition of the body now, Simpson predicts that she was actually killed on the last day she was seen alive, the 8th of June. While Simpson is busy with the crime scene, D.I. Ball explores the rest of the house looking for further clues. He finds two unopened letters addressed to Elizabeth the first is dated the 11th of June, and the second a day later. Both are signed from Arthur, 
though neither has a return address. The letters seem to suggest that she's been ignoring his calls, reminding her that they've been living together as man and wife, and that she has a duty to respond to him. He signs the last one, your loving and true hubby. The postmark on both the envelopes shows they were sent from Brighton. The eyeball adds them to the list of evidence he's gathering. The King's secretary confirms that he'd taken a call from a man called Arthur Boyce, who had claimed to be Elizabeth's fiance. He says he never met the man, though, and Ms. McLinden had not mentioned her engagement in her interview. Given that there is no sign of a struggle, the house hasn't been ransacked, no windows were open, and the front door had been locked when Papa Nicolo arrived, D.I. Ball confirms that she was murdered by someone who had access to the house. He asks Papa Nicolo to write a list of names that might fit the bill, but the secretary draws a blank. Other than the workers commissioned to do the renovations and Elizabeth herself, he has the only other set of keys. Had Elizabeth invited her killer in? Assigning some officers to canvas the neighbours, Ball is keen to know if anyone saw the housekeeper in the days leading up to her death, and, more importantly, if any of them saw the killer leaving Chester Square. This type of violent crime is rare in Belgravia, and the residents will be nervous. A quick result is essential, and D.I. Ball needs to get to work. Greed, revenge, lust. Murder investigations often pinpoint why someone has been killed, but not necessarily who did the killing. Every Tuesday on Unsolved Murders, meet the victims, suspects, and investigators of the most notorious criminal cases in history. Part traumatic podcast, part old-time radio show, Unsolved Murders transports you to the scene of a crime, its ensuing investigation, and every attempt to solve the case. You'll soon discover that the murder isn't always the most shocking part of the story. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. Back at Scotland Yard, Detective Inspector Ball begins looking into the victim's background. Elizabeth McLinden was born in Bathgate, Scotland in 1905. She had several siblings and kept in close contact with her sister Veronica, even after she moved to London. She served briefly in the ATS, the Auxiliary Territorial Service, which was the women's branch of the British Army. She was in service for about a year before requesting a discharge and going back to a housekeeping role. On the phone, the eyeball breaks the terrible news to Elizabeth's sister, Veronica. After explaining what he thinks has happened, he asks if she's aware of a suitor called Arthur. Veronica tells him that Elizabeth was engaged to a painter and decorator from Brighton called Arthur Robert Boyce. She tells Ball that all was not well in the relationship, though. When he questions her further, Veronica tells him that Elizabeth suspected that her fiancé was, in fact, already married to another woman. Apparently, Elizabeth found a wedding invitation in one of Boyce's jackets, which named him as the groom and a woman called Miss Witty as the bride. She'd been very upset by that, and the couple had argued. Despite Boyce claiming the relationship ended before any marriage, Elizabeth didn't believe him. She was both angry and distraught that he had lied to her. Veronica says that Elizabeth had confided in her that she was afraid of what Boyce would do, though. 
if she left him. Apparently, he had threatened to harm Elizabeth if she did. Finally, she tells Ball of a number of checks that Boyce sent to Veronica and the rest of her family, supposedly to pay for them to get to London for the wedding. All of the checks bounced, suggesting that Boyce doesn't have the kind of money he has always claimed. Hanging up the phone, D.I. Ball heads over to the criminal records office to see if Boyce has any history with the law. There, he learns that Boyce was indeed married to Miss Whitty. And the reason that fact shows up at the criminal records office is because in marrying Miss Whitty, Boyce committed bigamy. He was already married to someone else at the time. He was arrested for it in October 1944 and sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. He hadn't been out of prison long before he met and proposed to Elizabeth McLinden, though marrying her would have seen him straight back into prison for the same crime if it ever came to light. And that wasn't Boyce's only brush with the law. Ball finds a handful of convictions for breaking and entering and one charge of leaving his lawful wedded wife unsupported. Most importantly, there is a warrant out for his arrest on charges of check fraud. One of the fake checks was supposedly signed by the King of Greece's private secretary, Mr. Papanikolaou. This means that if he can locate Boyce, D.I. Ball can bring him in for questioning on the check frauds while figuring out if he had anything to do with Elizabeth's death. His detective instincts tell him that there is more to Mr. Boyce than the loving, worried fiancé his letters to Elizabeth suggest. Talking to residents of Chester Square, Ball's men learned that Elizabeth was seen hurrying out of the house at around noon on the 8th of June. The neighbour noticed her because she slammed the door quite hard on her way out before rushing across the square. Apparently, Boyce appeared shortly afterwards and knocked loudly on the door of number 45. Getting no answer, he ran off in the same direction as Elizabeth. The witness said he looked angry. But angry enough to kill? D.I. Ball decides he wants to question Arthur sooner rather than later. The letters he sent to Elizabeth were posted in Brighton, and Boyce's file references an address down there. It's as good a place to start as any, so Ball gets the train down to the south coast. Once in Brighton, it doesn't take long to find the address on Elder Street, and Boyce's landlady confirms that he still lives there, but he's gone out for a while. The landlady invites D.I. Ball in, and while waiting for Boyce to return, he asks her about her tenant. She paints a picture of a charming man who's had a tough time of it. She tells the detective that Boyce lost a lot of his family in the war due to enemy bombs. He'd also seen considerable action when he served with the elite commandos and had operations on his eyes to avert blindness. He obviously has her empathy. D.I. Ball knows from the police files on the man that all these heroic war stories are false, probably told to create a version of himself that people will admire and possibly support. The only detail the landlady provides that is correct is that Boyce became a painter when he left the army and now works on the pier in Brighton. Finally, Boyce arrives home. Knowing what a philanderer he is, Ball was expecting a swarthier type. Instead, he finds a fair-haired, wiry man with small, round spectacles and a relaxed demeanour. D.I. Ball introduces himself and, testing the reaction, 
tells Boyce that he would like to talk to him about Elizabeth McLinden. When he explains what's happened, Boyce seems upset at the news, saying he's been trying to contact her. Boyce sits down, as though coming to terms with what he's been told. He eventually looks up at D.I. Ball and admits that he's not surprised. When Ball presses him, he names a number of other male friends Elizabeth had. He also says that several odd people had been to the house in the past week since she'd been there, some of whom seemed to bear a grievance against the King of Greece. Perhaps, suggests Boyce, she was attacked as some sort of political statement. Ball notes it all down, like the diligent detective he is. He's no fool, though. All the while, he's watching Boyce's body language grow ever more unsettled. And he still has a few more questions to get through. Do you own a gun? The eyeball asks. After protesting that police couldn't possibly think he had anything to do with Elizabeth's death, Boyce admits that he did previously own a Colt 45. But he says that, on Elizabeth's request, he tossed it into the sea off the end of the Brighton Pier. When asked if he owns a 32 caliber pistol, he flat out denies it. Boyce remains cagey in his answers and D.I. Ball calls his bluff. Rather than arresting him on the spot for those check fraud charges, he lets Boyce think he's only there to talk about Elizabeth. Leaving the house, Ball goes across to Brighton Pier to talk to some of Boyce's workmates. One remembers Boyce showing him an automatic pistol, but of what type he can't confirm. He says that he asked Boyce if it was loaded, and the former soldier told him there were five in the spout. Far from tossing the gun off the pier, Boyce's colleague says he pocketed it again and took it home. With reason to believe the murder weapon may be on the premises, D.I. Ball returns to Boyce's lodgings and searches the whole place. But he doesn't find the gun. He does, however, find a luggage label addressed to a Mr. John Rowland in Carnarvon, Wales. Not sure yet if it will be of any use, the eyeball takes the label, along with a number of other personal items from the painter's home. Having seen and heard enough to convince him that Boyce knows more than he's letting on, the eyeball decides to arrest him. He charges Boyce with check fraud, knowing that this will buy him some more time to investigate any role the man may have had in Elizabeth's murder. Boyce seems to take the arrest calmly, and D.I. Ball has no trouble escorting him back to London on the train. Throughout the journey, Boyce barely mentions the fraud he's been charged with. Instead, he keeps returning the conversation to Elizabeth McLinden. He insists he had nothing to do with her death and begins listing various men who had interest in her. Ball, of course, takes note of the names, but he's already sure he has his killer. Everything he's learned about Arthur Boyce adds weight to his suspicions, but none of it is proof of murder. Unbeknown to D.I. Ball, though, the clue that will help to solve the case is already in his possession. With Boyce in custody, D.I. Ball turns his attention to the evidence he took from the suspect's lodgings. That address label, made out to Mr. John Rowland of Carnarvon, leads Ball to meet up with a Welshman with an interesting story to tell. Rowland explains that he had shared lodgings with Arthur in Fulham in 1989-90. and 
1945, Roland owned a 32 caliber pistol, legally through his service in the army. Boyce tried to buy it from him, but Roland declined the offer. When the Welshman was called up again, he returned to barracks to find that the pistol was not in his bag where he left it. He immediately assumed that Boyce had stolen it. He politely sent his former roommate a box and an address label to return the weapon. Needless to say, it was never sent back. D.I. Ball asks Roland, as a long shot, whether he might have any bullet casings from the gun. Roland considers the question and suggests that he might, somewhere in his home. He remembers testing the gun by firing it into the river. He's sure he kept the casing and has been using it as a spool for some adhesive tape. He agrees to let D.I. Ball and his team search his property to see if they can recover it. Sure enough, D.I. Ball finds the bullet casing in a jacket pocket in Roland's room wrapped in tape, just as the soldier had thought. They may not have the gun that fired it, but Ball feels that this is a significant lead. He's worked closely with the forensic team at Scotland Yard in the past and has a huge amount of respect for the work they do. He's starting to learn that science can make irrefutable proof out of the flimsiest of evidence. With a renewed spring in his step, D.I. Ball hurries back to Scotland Yard, the bullet casing safely in his grasp, hoping that this is just the breakthrough he needs. The casing he takes from Roland's room goes straight to the forensics lab to be compared with the one they found on the floor behind Elizabeth's chair. Of course, having a smoking gun would make Ball's case much stronger, but the study of ballistics has come a long way since before the war. The scientists are able to examine the shell of the bullet testing every scratch and scuff. Just like human fingerprints, each gun makes a unique impression on the metal of the bullet casings it fires. The shape of the barrel and the forces exerted on the bullet pushing through it, as well as the firing pin itself, all leave marks on the soft brass casing. Every different gun leaves its own unique and distinctive imprint on the bullets it fires. The breakthrough for D.I. Ball comes when scientists confirm that the markings on Roland's casing are an exact match for the marks on the one found beside Elizabeth's body. With almost 100% certainty, forensics prove that the two bullets were fired from the same gun, the very gun that Roland's claims Boyce stole from him. They may not have the murder weapon itself, but this is the next best thing. Science doesn't lie. Detective Inspector Ball is convinced he has his man. Boyce, of course, denies everything. But on the 15th of July, just over a month after Elizabeth was shot, he is committed to stand trial at the Old Bailey. The trial of Arthur Robert Boyce for the murder of Elizabeth McLinden begins on the 16th of September, 1946. The legal talent on display is considerable, as Judge Mr. Justice Morris takes his seat. The defensive team comes out all guns blazing, presenting a number of alternative scenarios. Apparently, a man called Arthur Clegg happened to have Elizabeth McLinden's name and address on his person when he'd been arrested for another crime. The defense claims that Clegg is in fact the Arthur with whom Elizabeth argued, not Arthur Boyce at all. After Clegg was released from custody, 
a note was found in his cell, claiming that he was involved in the murder, but that he felt untouchable since Boyce was already being held for it. The defence team feel this is crucial. The prosecution counter-argue, however, that Arthur Clegg is an unbalanced man whose sanity has been in question for some years. There is no doubt that Clegg neither knew Elizabeth nor had anything to do with her death. When Boyce is finally called to give his evidence, he changes his tune from the statements he made to D.I. Ball. Now he admits to having had the 32 caliber pistol in his possession, though he denies stealing it. He claims that Rowlands left it behind. He says that Elizabeth asked him to move in with her at the house in Chester Square because she had been threatened by several callers looking for the king. He tells the court that he gave the gun to Elizabeth on her request so that she could protect herself from the number of odd men turning up at the king's residence making threats. His statement now presents something else he's never mentioned before. Apparently, on the 8th of June, a visitor to the house disturbed him and Elizabeth in bed. They had told her to prepare for a visit from the king later that day. Boyce says that Elizabeth then became flustered, telling him to leave, as she didn't want her new employer to find him in the house. He claims he agreed to go and left the house immediately, making his way back to Brighton. He then admits that he spoke to her later that evening on the phone, but says that she sounded fine. His own barrister then asks him directly, did you murder Elizabeth McLinden? To which Arthur Boyce replies, certainly not. When the prosecution later asks if he was free to marry Ms. McLinden, as he'd promised, he replies angrily, no, and she knew it. But a previous witness had told the court that he was a good friend of the couple's and that their wedding plans had seemed firm. It is clear that Elizabeth had no idea Boyce was already married when she agreed to his proposal. Elizabeth's sister Veronica also takes the stand to tell the jury how she was due to be a bridesmaid. The wedding was due to take place on the 16th of July and plans were very much afoot. Her sister had placed an engagement announcement in the papers and had gone out to buy her trousseau. Hardly the actions of a woman who knew her betrothed could not marry. Veronica tells the court how upset Elizabeth was to find the incriminating wedding invitation in Boyce's pocket. She says that her sister hadn't believed Boyce when he denied the marriage and had kicked him out of the house after an argument. Finally, a friend that the couple had briefly lived with is called to the stand. She tells the jury that Elizabeth had admitted that she didn't love Boyce, but was actually rather afraid of him. She goes on to say that Boyce had apparently once threatened to shoot Elizabeth if she ever tried to leave him. The sounds of shocked surprise ripple around the court. Surely, there is no hope for Boyce's defense now. Yet his team tries one last attempt to sully Elizabeth's name, suggesting that she lied about the King's visit in order to get rid of Boyce so that one of her other lovers could come to the house. It's a weak argument and one that certainly doesn't do much to exonerate their client. With the case heard and final presentations made, the jury retires to consider their verdict. And it doesn't take long. After just four days of trial, Arthur Robert Boyce is found guilty of the murder of Elizabeth McLinden. He continues to claim his innocence even as the verdict is passed, saying, 
I should like to express my sorrow to the family of Miss McLinden, but I must also stress, here and now, that I am entirely innocent of this charge. His protestations fall on deaf ears, and he's sentenced to death. Even his appeal is thrown out by the Home Secretary, who says that his offence was further aggravated by him trying to blame other innocent people for his crime. A death sentence stands. On November the 1st, 1946, Arthur Boyce is executed by hanging at Pentonville Prison by famous executioner Albert Pierpoint. But why was Elizabeth McLinden killed? Perhaps Boyce felt too much pressure with his second illegal wedding looming fast. Or had she grown frustrated with his lies and left him as her friend had suggested? Did he kill her out of frustration and jealousy? Perhaps having discovered the truth about his repeated bigamy, she had threatened to report him to the police. It's possible that the idea of more time in prison led him to want to silence her. Ultimately, Boyce never took any money or possessions from Elizabeth and saw no benefit from her death apart from perhaps trying to protect his lawful wife from finding out about his latest indiscretion. Whatever the motive, the day that had begun with a parade to celebrate the end of World War II ended with a brutal murder and more bloodshed. Solving the case was another victory for accomplished detective D.I. Ball and the team at Scotland Yard Murder Squad. It was also a significant triumph for forensic science. The ballistic evidence presented proved beyond reasonable doubt that Boyce had killed Elizabeth with the gun he stole from Rowlands. In fact, modern ballistic scientists would argue that early cases like this one set the foundations for modern forensic comparisons in the UK. And it was evidence that would never have been discovered had it not been for Detective Inspector Ball's killer instincts. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. It's December the 29th, 1970, in the London suburb of Wimbledon. When newspaper executive Alec Mackay comes home to find his wife Muriel missing and the house in disarray, he fears she's been kidnapped. A phone call later that same night, demanding one million pounds for a safe return, proves he's right. The kidnappers want no police involvement, but it's already too late for that. Mackay is second in command to Rupert Murdoch and heads up the largest news media organization in the country. As soon as he realized his wife was missing, Mackay pulled strings to get the top detectives from Scotland Yard on the case. But can they solve Britain's first ever kidnap for ransom case in time? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Buaro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Sean Coleman. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Jacob Booth. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCoy.
lack of evidence, poor police work, clever criminals. Whatever the reason, some murders remain unsolved. Every Tuesday, Unsolved Murders explores the facts of a real-life cold case. Part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show. Join the ensemble cast of actors as they take you on an exhilarating journey through the crime scene and its ensuing investigation. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.